Real productivity does not come from trying to work all the time or get things done all the time, right? Real productivity comes from building habits, in particular mental habits, what researchers refer to as cognitive routines. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer, make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. Have you guys ever tried to make a new habit and totally failed? What about trying to break a habit? I usually fail more at those challenges myself. <laughs> and it turns out that in order to make and break habits, we need motivation and self-control. But how do we get that? Well, today's guest is the master of all of these things. And he is here to explain how we can all develop a bit more willpower and self-control to reach our life goals, big or small. That's right, this week we are talking with Charles Duhigg, a successful journalist and author who's best known for publishing The Power of Habit, a book which sold over 2 million copies worldwide and spent over 90 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Soon after, he won a Pulitzer, no big deal, for his work in the New York Times, looking at the ugly truth behind how iPhones are made. In 2016, he published a second book called Smarter, Better, Faster, The Transformative Power of Real Productivity. We are so excited to have you on the show today, Charles. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, do you ever feel like because you're the master of habits and productivity, you probably are the most productive person in the world? I do not feel like I'm the most productive person in the whole world. In fact, most days, including today, as I sit at my desk, I feel like I am uniquely unproductive. Um, but that that's actually okay because one of the ideas behind Smarter, Faster, Better about the science of productivity is that... the Real productivity does not come from trying to work all the time or get things done all the time, right? Real productivity comes from building habits, in particular mental habits, what researchers refer to as cognitive routines that allow us to think more deeply when thinking is hard. So there's this great Peter Drucker quote that I love that says that optimizing something that never should have been done in the first place is the greatest waste of time on earth, right? That if you, if you are making bad choices, no matter how productive you are at them, you're you're still wasting time. And so what's most productive throughout history, the killer productivity app has always been finding ways to think more deeply about the choices you're making so that you're spending time doing the things that matter instead of just being busy. I think this is where everyone gets caught up, right? Because they're not spending enough time making the plan. They're just diving into the to-do list. But the plan is where all of the magic is made, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and this influences everything about how we work and how we prepare to work. So, so he, here's a great example. I, you know, there's been a bunch of studies that have been done about how to write to-do lists. And, and you just mentioned a to-do list. And, and most people have to-do lists that are kind of long, right? They'll have like a, you know, anywhere from, from five to 25 to 30 items on them. But what all the studies tell us is that's exactly the wrong way to write a to-do list. That's a great memory list, right? It's better to take all the things that you want to get done in a week or a month or a year and to put them on a list rather than trying to remember them all in your brain. And so writing a memory list is fine, but using that as your to-do list is a 
terrible, terrible idea because we all have what's known as the psychological need for closure, the need for cognitive closure. So what we'll do is we'll look at a to-do list and, and we'll be urged by our brain to look for the easiest thing to do, the thing that we can check off the fastest and do that first because it feels so good to mark it off, right? In fact, about 20% of people when they write to-do lists will actually write down on the to-do list something they have already done because that way they can check it off immediately and it feels so good. Oh my gosh. And so what researchers say is that the right way to write a to-do list is go ahead and have your memory list and put that to the side. And on your to-do list, you should have only two things. The first thing at the top of your to-do list should be the most important thing to get done today. And then the next thing should be what you should do if you get that first thing done. And if you make it through both of those things, you can pull back out your memory list and you can spend 10 minutes looking at it and saying, what's the next most important thing to do today? But at any point, the question you should be asking yourself is not what can I get done today, but what is the most important thing I can get done today? What's the thing I've been putting off? What's the thing that if I do it today, it will transform what I can get done tomorrow? Instead of, can I make it through my emails and feel good about myself because my inbox is, is cleaned out or, or that I've you know, renewed that passport, which isn't going to expire for another 18 months? Oh my God. I have a lot to say about all of this, first of all, because I think that we live in email culture, which you know we've actually talked about on this podcast with like the notion that the end of email is coming. Email is actually the worst thing that's ever happened to our productivity and so on and so forth. But also that we love crossing out that line item, or for me, I'm deleting it off of my notes app every time I get something done. And you're right, I leave the big meaty projects on the list. And it's because I think the other issue is we don't often fragment those big meaty projects into smaller projects that ladder up to that meaty project. Is that something that you advise all of your followers to do? Yeah, absolutely. You know, exactly as you just mentioned, when oftentimes people will mix up a goal and a plan, right? And it's it's great to have goals. We should all have goals. If we can come up with with a list of goals that we want to accomplish, I think that's fantastic. And and New Year's resolutions is oftentimes a list of goals. But what makes a difference between someone who like sets a New Year's resolution or a or a resolution for this month and someone who actually gets it done? is that a resolution is, act- is oftentimes a goal and what you need is a plan. And oftentimes there's a certain way of writing plans that make it more l- realistic that you're going to accomplish whatever you want to get done. It's all about having a system. So one potential system you can use is called creating a SMART plan, right? And, and SMART is just an acronym. It stands for specific and measurable and achievable and realistic and a timeline. And it's just a system for, for reminding you when you develop a plan, what to think about so that you can get that thing done. And there's lots of different systems that you can use and, and none of them should take more than you know three or four minutes to help you develop a plan. But the point is that instead of just having a goal, instead of having a resolution, if you develop a plan, which entails, as you mentioned, taking something big and usually breaking it down into pieces or parts, then you're much more likely to get it done. And it's much easier to start since oftentimes the first step is the hardest step. Well, so I have a very interesting experience with this that I actually, I really did think of you years ago. I, cause I, I saw the book, Power of Habit, I read the book. It was the first week of January, 2018. And 
I still hadn't made my New Year's resolution yet. <laughs> and I looked back at all the prior year resolutions from years past and I noticed I failed at them. And I started getting nerdy and I looked into the data and I noticed that the majority of people fail their New Year's resolutions in general, but most of them fail by, I think it was literally February 8th. Like there was a specific date (laughs) when most people like fell off the wagon of their resolution, according to all this data and research. So I was like, well, this sucks. And I actually haven't like met any of my resolutions, but there's a million small things I would love to do. They just don't feel like big meaty resolutions. So what if I had a weekly resolution every week for this year of 2018? And I started a list of all the little things I wanted to try or learn or get better at. And they included things like, uh, you know, I wanted to learn how to sing. That's always been something in my life I thought would be interesting, even though I'm a terrible singer. Uh, I put that on the list. I wanted to see what it would be like to be a Lyft driver. It's so random, I know, but I've always wondered what the experience was like as the driver and not the passenger. I wanted to dye my hair blonde. And if you know me, I have very dark hair. I wanted to know what life as a blonde would be like. So I made a list of all these things I wanted to try for the year. (laughs) And I did one every week for 52 weeks. And I got so much better at things by doing one thing a day for seven days. Even if it was like practicing singing for 30 minutes or an hour or taking a lesson or being a Lyft driver, like whatever it was. And it was revolutionary. And I shared it every day on Instagram. You can still go to my profile and see all of them. They're in my highlights. And tens of thousands of women started following along and many of them started doing them with me. And even to this day, Many of these women are still doing give it a week challenges is what they're called, um, where they're picking a seven day challenge and not a year long challenge and not a month long challenge. And I think it's, it's that micro habit, right? That makes this all so simple. And especially for us working women, working parents, even like seven days feels like something you can accomplish. 30 days feels kind of scary and a year feels terrible. <laughs> but that, is there anything about that that makes you think this is something that all people should do? Yeah, no, I think that's a great plan. I I think in part because what you're doing is you're sort of lowering the barrier to entries for something that you want to get done. And and what we know from the science is that's exactly the right way to do things, right? Because when you do that, what you're doing is you're helping to make it easier to start. There's been a lot of research that's looked at why are things so hard to do? And in particular, why are they so hard to start? And a researcher named Katie Milkman, who's a, a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, has done a lot of work on this. And what she's found is that oftentimes when we hope to change, it's the starting of the change that's the hardest thing to accomplish. So if you can find some way to overcome an initial resistance that allows you to change it at first in a small way, then each subsequent step of, in that change becomes easier. And so the fact that you said, for instance, like, I'm going to do this for a week, I'm not making a huge commitment to it. Something you do for a week, you don't really have to invest that much in it, right? I just need to find like a, a singing coach to give me one lesson instead of trying to figure out who's the perfect singing coach that I'm going to be working with for the next six months. Or, you know, I want to go be a Lyft driver. If you're doing it for a week, you only really need to you know, sign up for one or two shifts. After one or two shifts, you probably got a sense of it as opposed to saying like, how do I reorganize my life in order to do this? <laughs> and so one of the things that Katie says is you should absolutely think in terms of these baby steps. What is the first step towards a goal that I have? How can I take that step in the easiest fashion possible? The other thing that she suggests is she suggests 
combining something that you don't like with something that you do like. So for instance, for her, one of the examples, and she just wrote this great book called How to Change. One of her issues was that she wanted to exercise more and she really hated exercising. On the other hand, she loved listening to like books on tape. She loved listening to like the Harry Potter series on tape. And she hadn't, this is back when Harry Potter was coming out. She hadn't listened to all the Harry Potter series yet. And so she decided I'm only going to listen to Harry Potter when I'm on the treadmill right? I have to exercise in order to listen to this thing that I really, really enjoy. And she's kind of taking advantage, piggybacking, it's called hedonic piggybacking, taking advantage of something that she already knows she likes and linking it with something else that could be a challenging task. And in doing so, what she does is not only does she take advantage of that baby step, because it doesn't seem like a big deal to, you know, go on the treadmill once so that you can listen to what happens next to Harry Potter. But in addition, she's already linking it to something that she enjoys. And as a result, it's going to be easier to start. Wow. I think that's so true. And I do the same thing with, I pick a Netflix show that I really want to watch and I make myself only watch it when I'm on the treadmill. So me and Katie already have something in common. And I swear to you, like, yeah, you're so right. The baby step into this is so important. And it's so fascinating how good you could get at something even in seven days. It shows you about the power of repetition, whether that's willpower. So I did so many diets. I did the keto diet. I did intermittent fasting. I did all these things. And like the first three days sucked. But by day seven, I was like, oh, I could fast for 16 hours. Like no big deal. Or, you know, the singing lessons or the, you know, cake decorating lessons or the painting lessons, like day one versus day seven were such incredible improvements. And again, not only did it increase my confidence level of just trying new things and getting um, less scared to take that first step by repetition, right? I did this 52 times. So I tried 52 things. I put it all on Instagram. It was really vulnerable and scary, except for by the end of the year, I was not scared to put anything out there and be made fun of or whatever, (laughs) because I've done it so many times. So I think repetition is something I found to be really helpful in getting vulnerable to try new things and to take that first leap into a new habit or a change. I've heard all of this about it takes 21 days to make or break a habit. Is this true? Um, and if so, <laughs> should we actually be doing 21 day challenges instead of seven day challenges? <laughs> well, no. So it doesn't, um, there's really no truth to the this kind of old wives tale that it takes 21 days to change a habit. The, okay. and the truth of the matter is that, you know, some habits can change really, really quickly. So if you want to create a habit that involves like eating chocolate every day after work, you could probably do that in like a day or two, right? Other types of it, uh, of habits like running marathons might take longer. But what does matter is how a habit works, because once you understand how a habit functions, then you begin to understand why every subsequent day makes it a little bit easier. So, so let me explain the sort of what's behind a habit. You know, we, we tend to think of a habit as one thing, but what research has shown is that every habit has three components. There's actually three parts to a habit. There's a, a cue, which is like a trigger for this automatic behavior to start. And then there's the routine, which is the behavior itself. And then finally, there's a reward, right? Which is, which is how our brain learns to remember this pattern for the future and make it easier to, to unfold. And there's a researcher named Wendy Wood, who is now at the USC, who followed around a ton of people, almost a thousand people for a long time, trying to figure out how much of what they did every day is a 
decision and how much is a habit. And what she found is that about 40 to 45% of what we do every day is a habit. That if I could somehow see inside your brain, what I would see almost half of the activities that you do every day, I would see that there's this cue that you might not be aware of. And then, and then a routine, a behavior that's become almost automatic. It's known as automaticity within the psychology literature. And then finally, a reward, it, whether you're aware of that reward or not. And the reason why that's important is because within our brains, as these three parts of a habit become interlinked, right? As the cue, the routine, and the reward become connected through neural circuitry, it means that every single time that behavior happens, the, the connections between those three things get a little bit thicker, which means that it's easier for an electrical impulse to run down that circuit a little bit easier. And, and as a result, what that tells us is that every time we do something, it's going to become more and more ingrained. So if you're trying to develop an exercise habit on day three of going for a run, it's going to be easier than it was on day one, particularly if you have a stable cue and a stable reward that you're giving yourself. Your brain is going to learn to relate those things and it's going to make running easier. Now, it might not feel that much easier on day three than it does on day one, but it will be easier. We, we, we know from studies, that if we could look inside your brain, that that's exactly what's happening. And on day 15, it's going to be easier than it was on day three. And on day 32, it's going to be a lot easier than it was on day 15 until eventually it's just going to feel automatic, right? We've all felt that, that the first couple of times you go running, you got to drag yourself out of bed. It feels like a real pain. And then suddenly three weeks later, you're just kind of doing it without even thinking about it that much. That's because of how our brains create habits. There's a part of our brain known as the basal ganglia that exists just to create habits. And as long as you have a stable cue, routine, and reward, it's going to get easier and easier and easier every time. There's nothing magic about 21 days, but there is something magic about persistence and consistency. Mm-hmm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So it could be different for a different number of days for every kind of habit. So it matters how strong the cue routine and reward is and potentially how that's becoming ingrained in our actual neuroplasticity in our brains to develop that habit. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And in addition to how strong, saying how strong is, is probably a little bit misleading. A better way of saying it is how consistent, right? So mm-hmm. for instance, when you go to exercise, are you are you always meeting your friend, you know, Steve at the gym every Wednesday night so that you get into the habit of seeing your friend and having that cue there when you're done with an exercise routine, when you're done going for a run, are you giving yourself a reward? Are you letting yourself take a nice long shower or making a nice smoothie? Are you giving yourself something that tells your brain like, look, what you just did is a good thing. You should remember this for the future and make it easier for the future. Mm. Now, of course, when you think about how most of us started an exercise routine, what do we do, we, you know, we, we wake up and we like, 
put on our running stuff. We have to find it in the back of our closet. But we said, like, I'm going to go running this morning. We go out and we jog around the block. And then we come home and we're actually running a little bit late. And the kids have to get to school. So we, like, jump in the shower and we shower as quickly as we can. And then we, like, grab the kids and we're completely <laughs> panicked. And we, like, rush to take them to school. And we're sweating and we're feeling anxious that we're not going to get there on time. We, we, in effect, are punishing ourselves for exercising. And our brain will pay attention to that punishment. Our brain will say, I don't want to make it easier to exercise. This is terrible. It makes, makes the rest of the morning a nightmare. So what's really important is coming up with a consistent cue that is stable and it helps you remember to do that activity and then giving yourself some type of reward that you actually find is rewarding that you give yourself the time and space to enjoy so that your brain latches onto that pattern and says, I should make this easier for the future. Oh, I like that. What about with, with people who want to diet? I feel like that's hard to have a reward because <laughs> you're usually feeling kind of lousy the first few days. Well, what's really important is that, you know, if you just try and extinguish a habit, it's unlikely you're going to be successful over the long term. So, so we have this kind of unfortunate way of talking about habits where we say we want to break a bad habit, but that's not really the right way to think about it. In fact, there's this thing known as the golden rule of habit change within psychology, which says you should not think about breaking a habit or extinguishing a habit, you should think about changing that habit. Because if you say, I want to diet, right? I'm going to eat less. Well, you know, through willpower, you can probably accomplish that. But at some point, you're going to be tired or you're going to have your willpower is going to be less or you're going to be stressed or your mother-in-law is going to be coming in town or something's going to be happening to make you say like, oh, man, I just I can't stick with this. And you're going to give in to your old habits. You're going to go eat that unhealthy thing because it feels like comfort food. So instead of saying, I want to extinguish this habit, I want to I want to eat less. What's important is to say, I want to eat something else. I want to replace this bad habit this old habit with something new. And that needs to be something new, a new behavior that corresponds to that old cue and delivers something similar to that old reward. So instead of saying, I'm going to eat less, what's much more useful is to say, when I'm hungry at the office, I'm going to eat an apple instead of eating uh, you know, a, a donut. And in order to make sure that it's really easy for me to eat that apple, I'm going to buy some apples. I'm going to put them on my desk because I know that there's some donuts in the break room, right? All I have to do is stand up and walk around the corner and I'll see a donut. So I need to anticipate ahead of time where this habit change is going to fail and come up with some solution to forestall that failure as much as possible. Mm, yeah, that's why everyone always tells you, just get the bad food out of your house. The first step of any diet is to purge your pantry and your refrigerator, right? <laughs> and just That's exactly right. Make but sure more importantly, not you. just to purge, but to replace, right? Because mm. look, if you eat a donut in the afternoon, it is because you are craving some kind of reward. Now, that reward might be that you're hungry. It might be that you want a burst of energy. It might be that just you want to get up from your desk and kind of stretch your legs. And so you've gotten into the habit of getting a donut in order to let you walk around and socialize with friends. And so you have to figure out what reward is driving this behavior. And then what can I replace that donut with that will deliver something similar to old reward, right? If the key is that like you keep on getting up in the afternoon and eating donuts because it gives you a chance to walk around the office, then having an apple on your desk might not do the trick. You might need to put an apple on a friend's desk mm. so that you go over and you like gossip with your friend for 10 or 15 minutes while you're getting the apple. The key is to diagnose the cues and routines and rewards that are pushing the habits in your own life and then figure mm. out how to replace those. So not just purging the food, but replacing the food. 
Mm-hmm. Is there like a, a list or a template or something you recommend people start with? It's a kind of like what we we're talking about, making a plan, right? Because I don't think many people have the awareness of what that cue routine and reward is for them. Well, so if they go to my website, charlesduhig.com, there's actually like a bunch of PDFs, which are like little flow charts to help you change a habit or create a habit. But it's not that hard, right? You don't really need a PDF. The first thing that you need is just to begin asking yourself, like, what are the cues and rewards that are driving this particular behavior? And most cues fall into one of five categories. A cue is most often either a particular time of day, a particular place, um, a certain emotion, the presence of certain other people, or a preceding behavior that's become ritualized. And so really, like, if you if you have a habit you want to change, like you want to stop eating donuts in the afternoon, when you feel the urge for that donut, when you feel the urge to get up and go grab that donut, just ask yourself, like, what time is it? Who's around me? What emotion am I feeling? What did I just do? What's the preceding behavior? Where am I physically? And if you do that a couple of times, pretty quickly, you'll figure out what the cue is, right? For many things, it's just like the time of day, or it's mm-hmm. that whenever you see your friend, you know, Brad, that's when you have an urge to drink <laughs> a beer because you guys always drink beers together. And so, so once you've figured out the cue, that's the first step, but then you have to figure out what the, what the reward is, right? And that's a little bit harder and figuring out the reward oftentimes means running some experiments. So if you're trying to change this donut habit, right? And let's say you figured out, I always have a craving for a donut three 30 in the afternoon. It's a time of day is the cue for my, for my donut habit. Then you got to figure out, okay, so what reward is that donut providing? Is it that when you're eating the donut, you get to um, stretch your legs, as we mentioned before? Or is it that when you get up to get a donut, like you actually need like a burst of energy? Well, if it's if it's just stretching your legs, let's try taking a walk around the block instead of taking a walk to the break room. Or let's try walking over to a coworker's desk and chatting with them. If it's that you need a burst of energy, then today when you have that urge at 3.30 to go get a donut, let's, let's go ahead and commit right now. You're going to get a cup of coffee instead and see if that kills the craving for the donut. Because once you figure out what reward the donut's providing, then you can find something else that delivers something similar to that reward. I love living life with experiments. Clearly, <laughs> I did one for 52 weeks and I'm, I've continued to do all kinds of experiments. I think that's genius. And I think you can use that in so many ways. I hope everyone listening is already thinking about what are the things in my day-to-day that I either want to build in or build out, right? Get rid of. And how do you use those cues and rewards and become more aware of them? to do so. Um, I want to talk about this too, you know, in speaking about our donut analogy of the workplace, I'm kind of laughing because a lot of us are not back in a real office right now with a real break room. Some of us are, um, but, but most of us literally are feeling burnt out. And this is something that you cover quite a bit, workplace burnout. And, you know, a Gallup study Uh, has said that two-thirds of employees are feeling burnt out on the job. But I've seen other studies that say over 90% of people currently feel burnt out by work. So what do you think is contributing to these factors of burnout? and, And what can we do to start changing the way we feel about it? Well, we know from the research a couple of different things, and, and there's sort of two ways to think about burnout, both of which are really important. The first is to look at what you're actually doing on a daily basis, right? If people don't have enough rewards built into their day, then it's very, very easy 
to start feeling like your work is, is just repetitive and meaningless. And so, you know, email is a great example of this. Like the, the truth of the matter is that, you know, the more email you send, the more emails you reply to, the more emails you're going to get in return. And so oftentimes it feels like you're on top of things because you've gone through all your emails and you've returned all of them. But then as soon as you like wake up the next morning or you come back from lunch, all of a sudden you see that you have two dozen new emails to deal with. And it feels like it's just this repetition of this pattern of repetition. So it's really important to make sure that whatever you're doing that there are genuine rewards that you're providing to yourself. And sometimes those rewards are natural, right? Sometimes you have a really good coworker who says like, hey, thank you so much. It was so good to hear from you. Sometimes you need to build those rewards for yourself. You need to, to make sure that you're taking time during the day to just um, you know stretch your legs or have a conversation with a coworker that you enjoy, you know, actually seek them out, particularly when we're working from home and in virtual workplaces, you know, we, we lose a lot of that social contact that matters so much. And so we can replace it just by saying like, hey, do you want to have a Zoom lunch? Not to talk about work and not talk about this project just because I miss talking to you and it's nice to just sort of socialize. So that's the first thing is finding ways to give yourself rewards during the day because those rewards are how our brain learns to kind of reset and relax. But then the second and equally important thing is we know that people get burnt out even if they have great workplaces if they're working on things that they don't actually care about, right? Our work has to have some degree of meaning for it to be something that is rejuvenating to us and not simply draining. Now, that doesn't mean that every single second of every single day has to have meaning. And it doesn't mean that the meaning that we have is like, I'm saving, you know, the world's children or something like that. Sometimes the meaning can be as small as, I really like the people working at this company, and I know that I'm helping them succeed by doing this work. Or, you know, I really believe in this product. Not that this product's going to change the world, but it's just a product I like. It's something that I've used before, and I think it would make other people happy to use it as well. Or it can be something as simple as, you know, I work in this large company and I know that this small thing that I do is linked to the good work that the company does. I'm an accountant in a hospital, so I'm not saving people's lives, but I know that by being an accountant, I'm making it possible for doctors to go and save people's lives. It's really important to have some sense of meaning about the work that you do, because that meaning, just as much as the rewards that we give ourselves on a daily basis, and we let ourselves enjoy, the meaning is also a source of reward that is more persistent and more durable. And so for anyone who's feeling burnt out, what I would say is those two things. Number one, make sure you find some way to let yourself enjoy rewards that you actually find rewarding during the day. And number two, make sure that you figure out how to link the work you're doing to something that's meaningful to you. Or if you're a boss, help your employees see the meaningfulness of the work they're doing. If you're, a, if you're running a hospital, make sure that the accountants hear from the patients who have been saved just as much as the doctors and the nurses hear from those patients. And let the accountants know the work they're doing are saving those lives. Right. And actually, we just had Dr. Lori Santos on talking about the science of happiness. And she uh, was explaining some of these experiments they ran uh, and research they've done and asking people even like janitors, like, why do you, do you love your job? Being a janitor seems like a really hard job. And, and to your point, they said, well, because, you know, we are 
cleaning up uh, in hospitals um, to make these patients recover faster, to make their experience better. And that gives us so much joy and meaning. And I, I think that's, that's huge because I, our perception as humans is that there's this like totem pole of meaning and work, but actually so many different jobs have different types of meaning if you just dig a little bit underneath. And for me, as someone who is the leader of a startup and has worked in the startup you know, community for over a decade now and in venture capital, like it, the only way to recruit employees to a small company is to make them buy into the mission, right? And to um, really convey the meaning of their work and how you know, you're changing the world. And if you have equity in this company, that means you're an owner, a part owner. And if this company continues to grow and changes the world. So will, you know, your, your income and, you know, your level of achievement and success. It's funny though, because I think the money always becomes secondary, uh, especially at the early stages of a new company, uh, secondary to the meaning, to your point, the meaning of the work and the mission. And I have seen some interesting companies like, like financial technology companies that sound really boring, convey meaning <laughs> in what they're doing. So if they can do it, anyone out there can do it. And I think that, um, I think meaning is not only a contribution to burnout removal, but overall life happiness. Yeah, no, absolutely. What about motivation? It's a little bit of a twist from burnout, but you know, how do we actually keep ourselves motivated and keep others motivated, especially if we are at home? Are there anything, actual prescriptive things you think we should do to stay motivated during the day. Yeah, there's two things in particular that we know um, from from re- research on motivation, and the first is very similar to what we were just talking about: is that is finding that connection to something meaningful. So, so when I was working on Smarter, Faster, Better, and the Power of Habit, but for Smarter, Faster, Better, I was talking to this one researcher who's a neurologist at Oxford, and I was asking this guy like, "What's the task that you hate to do the most?" And he was like. Oh man, I just, I absolutely hate grading students' tests. Like it's just boring and it's the same test over and over and over again. And I don't enjoy it. And, and so he, he was saying, you know, the way that I do this to get the, the motivation to start grading the test is I do two things. The first thing is I sit down and before I start grading a test, I say, look, we need these students' tuition in order to run the university. And to get the tuition, I have to grade their tests because otherwise they won't pay for the courses, right? That's an important part of courses. And when they pay for the courses, that means that Oxford can support my research. And and this guy was someone who was looking into cancer research. He was saying, and if Oxford supports my research, then it gets me closer to curing cancer. And if I can cure cancer, then millions of people's lives will become better. So by grading this student's test, I'm actually helping millions of people's lives by curing cancer, right? It's a little preposterous that he, that he says this, but it's what he says every single time he sits down to grade students' tests because it helps him motivate to do it. And that's kind of the point is that even someone who's at Oxford, someone who has two PhDs who spent his entire life being motivated to do work, even he has to go through this kind of mantra before he starts doing something to help him self-motivate. But then the second thing he does, and there's a lot of research backing this up as well, is that he finds some choice he can make. So if you can change a chore into a choice, it will activate those parts of your brain that make it easier to start. So oftentimes, instead of just 
grading exams, what he'll do is he'll say, okay, I'm going to start by grading question three on each test, and then I'm going to go back to question one, and then I'm going to go to question two. So just by choosing some, making some choice, finding some place to exert our own authority and agency, that oftentimes makes it easier to start and to motivate for something because it feels like we're in control instead of simply reacting. Mm, it reminds me of that famous Google study that was done. And, uh, you know, Google is a place I worked for four years, which was, you know, they studied all of these teams at Google, the most high performing teams inside of Google. And, you know, Google has tons of employees and, and therefore teams. <laughs> they It came down to these two bullets, right? Which was like one was, do they have psychological trust with one another, right? So the ability to be vulnerable with each other and say what's bothering them. And the second was, do they have control over their work? Is that a study that you followed as well and that you can relate to as part of this? Yeah, yeah, example? actually, the, um, probably the reason you know about that is because because I wrote about that. The you first wrote, time. It's okay, Project, oh, this, okay, Project your Aristotle, study. <laughs> and it was, it's actually in Smarter, Faster, Better. Yes, and, okay. And was excerpted in the New York Times Magazine, yeah. So, so Project Aristotle was this big... A um, study by the by Google to try and figure out which teams were more successful and why. And you're exactly right. They found that psychological safety has a huge amount to do with whether teams come together, whether they gel and become sort of the unit is bigger than the sum of the parts. And a huge part of that is: do people feel like they have agency? Do they have some ability to have an impact on the group and also the company? And equally, do they feel like the other people? at the table, the other people on their team, do those people have their back? Are they going to try and look upon what you're saying in the most charitable light possible rather than hold it against you and try and find ways to undermine you? Right. I think this is huge because A, most people, especially in this remote world we live in now, aren't taking time to develop relationships first right? And sort of explain to each other, this, this is how I work. Here are the things that stress me out usually. Like if I'm, you know, ever acting like this, like here's the best way to help me cope. Um, I think men in particular, sorry if I'm generalizing, are not as great at sharing emotions and maybe this psychological safety. Um, men and women is a whole different issue. And then women to women. Um, I think there's issues in all of them. But, but how would you recommend, you know, workforces actually start learning how to create psychological safety? Well, th there's a couple of things that we know are pretty effective. And, and there's actually, um, one of my favorite things is there's a, a former colleague of mine named Adam Bryant who wrote a column called The Corner Office, and he's, where he would ask CEOs, essentially, what do they do to be successful? Like, what makes them successful? And, and a number of them have great tips that he's collected in these books that it's well worth reading. And one of the things is to kind of try and give your coworkers a user's manual. So to sit down and say, look, I have some quirks and you have some quirks. And he actually has this worksheet that you can fill out with other people to let them know what your quirks are. But to say like, you know, I'm the kind of person who draws energy this way and loses energy that way. And so let me let, let me let you know about that because everyone's different and we should be aware of it. But then there's some other things that we can do to create psychological safety. One of the most important things, and a lot of this has to do with team leaders and how they behave because other people will model themselves after, after the leader is 
getting everyone to speak is really, really important right? So we've all been in meetings where, you know, there's some people who kind of dominate the conversation and other people are a little bit more, um, you know, reserved and they kind of like wait on the sidelines and don't speak as much. It's really important to get everyone in that room to speak up in roughly equal measure. That doesn't mean exactly the same number of minutes or exactly the same amount of time, but what's known within psychology as equality in conversational turn-taking helps create psychological safety. The other thing that helps create psychological safety is what's known as ostentatious listening. So when I hear you say something, if I repeat it back to you, if I react exactly to what you just said, if I do what's called a callback, right? Where, you know, 20 minutes in the conversation, I say, hey, do you guys remember when Britt said at the beginning of the conversation X, it lets you know that you're being listened to and it causes other people to listen more closely. Mm-hmm. And so these two things, equality and conversational turn-taking and the ostentatious listening, those things are both shown to create psychological safety. And so it's worth a team leader doing that in part because everyone else on the team will begin mirroring or modeling themselves after what the leader does. Hmm. The ostentatious listening is so important. It was one of the first things I learned in executive coaching many years ago, and I never even thought about listening as a practice to create better communication. It's usually just about how you you would think of communication, like how am I speaking? Am I eloquent? I did think about like eye contact and spreading conversation around the room to different people, but the listening part is so key. And I did have one other question on this front. Like I've always heard you should say someone's name when you're talking to them, which also creates sort of a deeper connection and uh, maybe more, more meaning or more feeling like they're being seen and heard. Is that part of your research as well? Basically anything little like that, like sure if it can help if it's natural or it can be super creepy if it isn't, right? Like like <laughs> we've all been in conversations. Times. Yeah, we've all been in conversations it, where Charles. someone where someone like says our name over and over and over and you're like, you're the weirdest person on earth. You're like a That's robot. True. Like in general, and this gets back to what we started by talking about, in general, like little hacks like that, those things don't really matter, right? Like Little things like say someone's name or, you know, echo back what they just said. Those things matter much less than the big idea that's under it. And the big idea is if you're ostentatiously listening, if you're forcing yourself to repeat back what people have said, in order to do that, you have to actually be listening, right? You're you're coming up with habits to force yourself to pay more attention, to think more deeply about what someone's saying, to try and genuinely be engaged in the moment. That's why ostentatious listening is good. It's not because like simply saying someone's name or echoing back what they just said makes a huge difference. It's because in order to do that, you have to remember their name. You have to listen to what they're saying so that you can repeat it back to them. You have to force yourself to pay more attention and to think more deeply about what they are actually saying. And that thinking more deeply, the habits that we build that teach us, give us the moments to think more deeply, particularly at those moments when thinking is hard, right? Because you're in the middle of a meeting and there's just a lot of information being thrown around and a lot of things going on. And so how do you force yourself? What's your habit to take a slight break and just like think more, think more deeply about what you're about to say? Those are the things that actually matter. And if saying someone's name is a way, is a habit that allows you to do that, then it's great. But if you're just saying someone's name for the sake of saying someone's name, I don't think anyone's going to be like, oh, this person's really awesome because they remembered my name. (laughs) Okay, good. Because actually I'm really bad at remembering names. So I'm glad that doesn't matter too much to this equation, but I am good at listening. And I also believe that 
what you're saying is so true. It's like, it's part listening, spreading conversation. Let me, Charles, let me repeat to you what I've learned so far in this conversation. We talked about productivity, habits. You can't break a habit. You can change a habit. I learned about that. We learned about motivation. Um, we didn't touch on willpower, though. I think that's an interesting one to go into. And then we talked about um, meaning and motivation, right? And that the two things that you need to have meaning and motivation in your work is to have control over parts of your work. And you have to have psychological safety. Did I summarize that all correctly? You did great. You did a great <laughs> job of summarizing it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Do you feel seen? Do you feel more seen and heard right now I <laughs> because do. of that? Okay, yeah. good. Um, we're going to end this with a little bit of a lightning round. So whatever first thing pops to mind, you just blurt it right out. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. What is the best habit you have? I think the best habit that I have is that when I'm editing particularly editing myself, I can get into a flow state fairly easily around it. So I used to edit a lot on the subway because I lived in New York City. And the nice thing about editing on the subway is you have to tune everything out and really focus on what you're reading because there's so much noise and so many distractions. And so that's been really helpful because it means that when I do start writing or when I do start editing, I can sort of get down to business very quickly. Mm, That's a powerful habit. I should put that on my give it a week list. All right. What is the worst (laughs) habit you have? Oh, the worst habit I have is that when I'm stressed, I eat and I get annoyed really easily. So sometimes like I'm like stressed out and distracted by things and like I'll get annoyed at my kids more than I should or or really at all because you never should get annoyed by your own kids. And and it's hard to, to not do that when I'm feeling like there's like too many things sort of on my attention at once. Well, I think if you're a parent, you have to be annoyed at your kids at least half the time. All right. What is one job you would like to try? A job I'd like to try? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I mean, I feel really lucky to be a journalist. I've really, really enjoyed being a journalist and and getting a chance to write books. You know, maybe being a writer for television. That seems yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah, I was going to say write a screenplay. Yeah, because it's so collaborative and like writer's rooms seem really interesting. So I guess that's what it would be. I think that's a great next step for you. <laughs> Someone that just met you an hour ago. What is your favorite book of all time? And it can't be one of your own. Oh, yeah. It definitely wouldn't be one of my own. I, I don't actually reread the things that I write because it's too painful. Oh, there's two books that I love. Um, one of them is A Great Gatsby. It's I think it's just beautifully oh, written. So good. Uh, one of my other favorite books is... is um, it's a book called A Visit from the Goon Squad by by Jennifer Egan. And I think it's just like such a fun, creative piece of beautiful literature. And so that's one of my favorite books. A Visit from the Goon. I've never heard of that. Okay. Putting it was that great. On it won my... the Pulitzer Prize um, a couple of years ago. I'm it's putting really it on good. my audiobook while I treadmill list. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. And then lastly, choose one, win another Pulitzer or write another New York Times bestseller. Oh, definitely write a New York Times bestseller. Okay. Writing, a, writing a bestseller is way better than winning a Pulitzer. <laughs> okay. Is, yeah. And will we be first to know when that's happening? Hopefully the world will know. If everything okay. goes according to plan, then, then no one will be in the dark about it. Great. Well, we're eagerly standing by. <laughs> oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Um, so we like to leave our listeners with a little project or assignment every week. And, you know, knowing that you've, you have so many assignments you could give out, is there one in particular that you would recommend our listeners try this week? Well, I think the number one thing to do is to try and, and take a goal that you have 
and just break it into a plan. And a one-week plan is a great plan, right? Like the nice thing about like a a one-week plan is it can't be that intimidating because you got to do it in the next week. So if you want to lose 15 pounds, then just try and figure out what's the one thing you can do this week that's going to get you closer to that. Mm-hmm. And make it small and make it make it modest. If if you want to become a singer, what's the one thing you can do this week that gets you closer to that? And then when you do that one thing, when you like, you know, skip dessert one night, when you book your first lesson with a singing coach, let yourself enjoy it. Reward yourself. Pat yourself on the back. Write down on a in, in your diary or on your calendar, like, you know what? Today I killed it. Like I am awesome because I did this one small thing. Because the truth of the matter is that like every single big change in life, it starts with one small thing. Mm-hmm. And we tend to beat up on ourselves because we're not doing the the big change overnight. But nothing ever changes overnight. It all changes because one person decided, I'm going to do one small thing tomorrow morning or tomorrow night. And then they rewarded themselves for that. And it became easier and easier and easier until it became part of their life. 100%. I could not agree more. And I would only add on to that to not just make the plan, but literally start tomorrow. Do it as quickly as you can, because that leap off the edge is the hardest part. But once you take the leap, you're in it (laughs) and you're on your way. So I I really do appreciate all of these words of advice, Charles. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can our listeners find more about you? So they can just Google me, Charles Duhigg, um, and and charlesduhigg.com will come up. I'm on on Twitter at cduhigg, and my last name is D-U-H-I-G-G. Or if they want to email me, my email address is actually on my website, and I actually... Read, read and respond to every <gasps> single reader email I get. So, Guys, so you'll definitely hear back from me. That's huge. If you just heard that, you need to send an email immediately because not everyone <laughs> sends out their email address on this podcast. And we have some great people on this show. Okay, well, this is amazing. You're amazing. I'm excited about all of our, our future habits, non-habits, productivity, meaning, motivation, non-burnout, and everything else in between. And if you guys enjoyed the show today, please leave us a virtual high five by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Ali Ives and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson. 